you know, uh, the Advent season. Here's a little, you're going to get a lot of this this morning, so get ready. Uh, is Latin for the coming. That's what Advent means, the coming. And that this time of year, um, of course, theologians call it not the coming. They call it the incarnation. When I was a kid, I always thought of carnation ice cream when I heard that. So, and that is a great hope to have. And so, um, but it's, uh, I, you know, I'm, the older I get, when I say this, I want to slow down and say it so you're hearing it the way I'm hearing it. The birth of God into human history. Staggering. Now, here's the question. How do we know it was God who came? Well, it's a very prophecy we're going to look at today. I'm very excited about what we're doing over these next few weeks. Um, uh, Jesus and the prophet, we're calling it Unwrapped Promises or Promises Unwrapped. I have it backwards on the notes. That's me, dyslexic Dan. So let's start here. What is prophecy? You know, we all have a lot of ideas about it. Um, it. Prophecy, particularly as it relates to the Old Testament books, um, what we would call, if you're Jewish, you would call it the, the Jewish scriptures. They break, our Old Testament and the Jewish scriptures are identical. They are just categorized differently. So um, the Jewish scriptures start with the Torah, which is the first five books, and then they go into the um, Medivim, which is the prophets, and then they go into Kedavim, which is the writings. Those are their three categories. And off the top of my head, our Old Testament is, they call it the Pentateuch, same as the Torah. Um, we have the prophets, the historical books, and I think poetry is how our Old Testament catalogs the Jewish scriptures. But what's interesting is um, the, the prophets are divided up, as you can see here on the screen. There are 15 books named after specific prophets. There are just three major prophets in the Jewish ordering of the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. They put Daniel in their writings. In the Christian order of the Hebrew Scriptures, we add Daniel in to the major prophets. Doesn't really mean anything. There are 12 minor prophets. Those are all those books you see at the end of the Old Testament, one after another, 12 different names of these guys that were called by God. Now, major prophets are described because their books, believe it or not, this is why they're called major prophets, are longer. <laughs> That's why they're major. They're much longer books. And the content does have broader implications, as you will see today as we look at the, the major prophet Isaiah. All Israelites, uh, prophets were always Israelites, right? God never used anybody outside of the, the nation of Israel to be a prophet for him. And they each had a radical encounter with God. And uh, sometimes in their writings, they would preface what they're saying by this is what the Lord says. And by the way, that's a good point to remind you of in their writings. We have prophets that didn't write Ezekiel, Elijah, I mean, not Ezekiel, Elijah, Elisha, <coughs> and others. And here I got a little tickle. Hang on. Happy. Have... 
Uh, the point is that God had spoken to them, and they were his representatives. You know, we like to think of prophets as fortune tellers, not in the Bible. That's true of other cultures, but in the biblical culture of prophets, uh, they mostly spoke God's message to the people as it related to what was going on in their time. On occasion, they would speak about the future. Peter, would, writing in the New Testament, looking back at the Old Testament prophecies, would say this. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Now, that's a faith statement. No question. But we're going to put a lot of teeth to that faith today. The prophet Isaiah wrote seven centuries in 8 BC before Christ was born. He lived in and around Jerusalem, like I said, during that 8th century BC. And he spoke as a prophet to the leaders of Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah on God's behalf. Um, his book is long. It's 66 chapters. The first 39 chapters are all about warning judgments against Jerusalem and the leaders of Judah. The last uh, 17 or 27 books, uh, 40 through 66, deal with the fulfilled hope, uh, the hope being fulfilled in the covenant of God to the nation of Israel. That is yet to happen in history. Interestingly enough. Now, I said the southern kingdom. For those of you, and, and I, I go back and I remember this so well, not understanding so much what I used to hear in sermons. And, and I always carry that in my heart when I get up here, that some of you could be in that same place I was years ago. When you hear the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, under King David and under his son Solomon, it was a united kingdom. It was just Israel. But after Solomon died, um, David's grandson, Rehoboam, took over. And, and he, was, he was vicious. And as a result, the 10 northern of the 12 tribes of Israel, named after the 12 sons of Jacob, they, those 10 tribes in the north split away from the two tribes in the south called, uh, uh, called Judah and Benjamin. So the southern kingdom, as you can see there in the rust color, was known as Judah. The northern kingdom retained the name of Israel because it was 10 of the tribes. And uh, Jeroboam led the northern kingdom. Rehoboam was the first king of the southern kingdom. And uh, th that was uh, 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 the beginning of a very prolonged centuries, centuries full of bad leaders. In fact, Israel had 20 kings, and all of them were wicked in God's eyes. Uh, in the 20 kings that Judah had, um, seven were good. So um, Judah, Judah was the, where the seed was coming out of anyway. So uh, the, we're going to be talking about that. So the divided kingdoms started in 934 B.C. We're now 200 years later approximately. And the king of the southern kingdom of Judah is King Ahaz. And um, we're going to hear some things today about uh, Ahaz. So I'm going to read this for you. It's 17 verses. I might stop just a couple times in this reading to say some things that I'm not going to say in my message because there's a lot in here. It's chock full and it's very hard to follow. 
my brain got scrambled this week just really focusing on what I'm reading, what I'm talking about. It's just so easy to get twisted on this. So I'm going to do my best to keep this as simple as possible for us. So here's the, the reading. This is when Ahaz, the son of Jotham and the grandson of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king resin of Syria, country still in the news today, and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, who was the king of Israel at this time. So Pekah wasn't a good king. We already know that. He was one of the Israelite kings. He set out, these two guys set out to attack Jerusalem. However, they were unable to carry out their plan. And the news had come down to the royal court of Judah that Syria is allied with Israel against us. We've got two nations against us. So the hearts of the king, Ahaz, and his people trembled with fear like trees shaking in a storm. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, take your son, and you see that name behind me. It, I'm going to try to say it as best I can based on the blue letter Bible enunciation. Sha'adi Ashav. Sha'adi Ashav. That's his son. He's probably two, three years old. And go out to meet King Ahaz. And you will find him at the end of the aqueduct that feeds water into the upper pool near the road leading to the field where the cloth is washed. Tell him to stop worrying. Tell him he doesn't need to fear the fierce anger of those two burned out embers. King Rezin of Syria and Pekah son of Ramalia. Don't you love prophets? <laughs> the original smack talkers. Verse 5. Yes, the kings of Syria and Israel are plotting against him, saying, we will attack Judah and capture it for ourselves. We're going to install the son of Tabeel as Judah's king. But this is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Isaiah speaking. This invasion will never happen. It will never take place. For Syria is no stronger than its capital, Damascus, and Damascus is no stronger than its king, Rezin, which means they're not much. And Israel... Within 65 years, it will be crushed and completely destroyed. And Israel is no stronger than its capital, Samaria. And Samaria is no stronger than its king, Pekah, son of Ramalia. And then this is a key phrase in here. Unless your faith, faith is firm, Isaiah is saying this to King Ahaz, I cannot make you stand firm. We are not robots. We have choices. Verse 10. Later, this is at a different meeting now. The Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Why is he saying that? Because he knows Ahaz isn't trusting him, right? Make it as difficult as you want, as high as the heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. But the king refused. No, he said, I will not test the Lord like that. Then Isaiah said, listen well, you royal family of David. Isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? All right, then. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Look. 
the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. You're going, where did that come from? We'll get into this. Verse 15. Now, you remember, Isaiah's got his boy standing there next to him. And a lot of people have confused this next verse with the child that's being mentioned in verse 14 above. It's not. He says, by the time this child, that's Isaiah's boy standing there next to him. He's probably got his hand on his head while he's saying this is old enough to choose what is right and reject what is wrong, he will be eating yogurt and honey. Okay, now, let me just give you a... I'm the only time I'm going to talk about this, because this is a prophecy, not the one we're going to examine. But I want you to be aware of it, because it's very confusing if you don't understand this. He's got his boy there. He's looking at his ass, and he says, when this kid's reaches the age of accountability, whatever that is, when he knows the difference between right and wrong. So it could be when he's 20 years old. Who knows? He's going to be eating yogurt and honey. Well, who cares what he's eating, right? Well, this is being spoken in 736 B.C. by Isaiah to Ahaz. In the year 722, 14 years later, the Assyrians will take out the northern kingdom, right? And so in 701 B.C., they come for Judah. It's an amazing story in 2 Kings 19. If you're taking notes and you want to read it, it's the story of, of Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers and what Isaiah tells him to do and to trust God, and he does. Hezekiah was the greatest king of all the kings. Josiah was probably number two. So we got Josiah's, but nobody's naming their kid Hezekiah. What's up with that? <laughs> Write this down. I, I, the very same chapter, Isaiah 7, verses 18 through 23, which we're not going to read, covers that part of the story and explains why he says yogurt and honey. Because that's the, all that will be left in the land when the Assyrians come down for that southern kingdom in 701 B.C. It's an interesting passage. You can read it in there. All right. Back to verse 16, another prophecy. Still the boy standing there. For before the child is that old, even grown up to know the difference between right and wrong, the lands of the two kings you fear so much will both be deserted. In other words, in 14 years, this place is going to be flattened. The area that you're worried about these guys attacking you, they're done. So big, strong words here, right? And then verse 17 lands what I just was talking about. Then the Lord... Speaking to Ahaz, will bring things on you, your nation, and your family unlike anything since Israel first broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria upon you. Of course, it won't be Ahaz. He, he's already going to be dead. He dies at 36. It's his son Hezekiah that has to face that one. All right. There will be a quiz. The paper will be handed out shortly. Whom, whom did Isaiah... Deliver this message, and what was its meaning at the time? I can't wait to tell you about it. First of all, let me give you who was Ahaz, okay? In 2 Kings, one of the historical accountings, you got First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. It gives you a history of all this time period. When he was just 20 years old, he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. He did not do what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord God, as his ancestor David had done. 
Instead, he followed the example of the kings of Israel, even sacrificing his own son in the fire, which is, was a practice to the god Molech. So this guy is so sunken into idolatry that he sacrifices his own son. So we're not dealing with a good heart here, right? And so when we go back and we learn that uh, he, they're all freaked out about these two, the king of um, Israel and the king of Syria aligning to come down and carry out their plan, right? So initially, well, um, and I'll give you a picture of this, the 10 tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom, joins in this military alliance with Syria, also known as Aram. If you're looking at a different translation, Aram was Syria, is Syria. And, and the reason to do that is they got an alliance because they, they knew Assyria was strong and was making moves, and they wanted to develop an alliance along with Egypt to repel the Assyrian army's advances, right? So they asked Israel there in the burnt orange, asked Judah in the, in the, the reddish down there, but you need to join a ram and us in order to fight against the Assyrians. And, of course, um, Ahaz refused. And here's why Ahaz refused, and this is why they were threatened by the other two. He had already made an alliance with Assyria. And this is what Second King says. He sent messengers to the king of Assyria with this message. I am your servant and your vassal. Come up and rescue me from the attacking armies of Aram and Israel. So this is right in context to what we're reading. Then Ahaz took silver and gold from the temple of the Lord and the palace treasury and sent it as a payment to the Assyrian king. And this, in a nutshell, is the crux of the whole story. Ahaz is banking on his alliance with Assyria to save Judah. Isaiah is coming to Ahaz to say, dude, God wants you to trust him and him alone for your protection, period. Don't align with this corrupt nation. So that's why he sends Isaiah, and he takes his son with him, and he says, you'll find him at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool near the road leading to, the, to where the cloth is washed. It's a very specific location, and it has more meaning than meets the eye. This particular pool called the upper pool. Now, it's weird. The translation I'm reading you here is the New Living Translation. When you look at other translations, it, it defines the pool as outside the wall. And, and when we're talking about Israel in these days, Judah in particular in these days, Jerusalem, it was, it was the, what was called the old city of David, if you've ever heard that term. And here's, here's a picture of the old city of David, that which is circled in red. You can see above it, and this is a modern picture. You can see the Temple Mount. All that came later. Yeah, in Jesus' day, Herod had rebuilt the temple where, where the mosque now is, is. The temple was up there. But that little red area down there, that was the old city. That's all of the capital of Jerusalem in those days. There's a Kidron Valley, the Mount of Olives is... Uh, up there to the right of the Temple Mount on those kind of shaved hills. It's actually on the lower part in the green. And uh, that's the Kidron Valley that walks through there that Jesus came across to the temple to walk through the Golden Gate. Anyway, that's the old city of David. Here's another picture of it, right? It, uh, it's just that blue area. That was all that existed in Jerusalem in those days in the time of Isaiah. That blue dot, which is not mine, I, that's just how the picture came, is basically where the fortress of Ahaz was. Now, check this out. 
It's so hard to get any good pictures. I thought I could find tons on the internet, and I got all this stuff. But that's the palace of Ahaz up there, right? The upper pool was located, I believe, outside the city walls, and there was an aqueduct that ran into the city, came under the wall, and ended near, the, not near, intersected at the end this road that led up from what was the laundry field where they washed the clothes. So most common, we don't have a lot of good information on this geography, but most commentators think it was in that black arrow ending, and there is where he stood with his son, whose name, by the way, Sha'ari Ashav, means a remnant will return. Itself, another prophecy, but we won't go into that right now. That's for a later time. Isaiah is standing there, and probably Ahaz is up on his wall. God actually tells him to go there when he goes there. There's Ahaz. God knows what he's doing. All right. Um, so, um, this is where it gets really interesting. The word pool that's, you know, translated from the Hebrew word for pool is a homograph. And, and it, a homograph, excuse me. And it's one of two or more words that have the same spelling but differ in meaning, you know. And so, like, duck. Duck is a bird. Duck is also what? What you do with your head, right? That's a homograph, right? A nut. A nut is something you eat, and it is somebody in this room right now. <laughs> ring, right? Ring, ring. Ruler, pastor. <laughs> Measuring stick. Seal, <laughs> and a seal. That a state seal, right? So that's a, that's a homograph. So the word pool also can mean blessing in Hebrew, right? This is, this is cool. What I'm about to share with you. Um, and so this aqueduct that led down from this upper pool, because it was an upper pool, was also known as the blessing of the Most High. So this spot is the blessing of the Most High that he's standing on, coming down from this pool. That's another name for it, right? And it intersects a road coming up from where they washed the clothes. So there's this, as it were, this picture of the upward cleansing. And this is where Isaiah is actually told to stand and speak to Ahaz. Why would the, what would those specific location details symbolize? Well, you and I know, re, know, knowing what came up in this speech, 714 a virgin will come. It could only describe Jesus himself. Isaiah has no clue. Because Jesus is the end of the channel of the blessing of the Most High. And he's also the way of, the upward way of cleansing. I, it's just these details sometimes in the scripture are staggering, right? They're, they're there. Just got to dig in there and you people that are much smarter than me find them and reveal them and you just go, wow. So, God tells Ahaz, as we've already read, don't worry about these guys, right? And this is where it, it gets um, important because he says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And he says, it's not going to happen, this invasion. It's not, gonna, it's not going down. And, uh, and be, beyond that, Israel is going to be completely broken off. 
in 65 years. It won't even exist. Well, the truth is, it was only 14 years before Israel was actually conquered. It just took a lot of years to clear out all the people because Assyria didn't leave any of them in the land. They pulled them out, except perhaps the poorest of the poor. So that would happen in 722, 14 years after this prophecy was given that, uh, that Israel would go away as the northern kingdom, never to return. Those 10 tribes never returned. It, it took 50 years to get the land completely cleaned out, but that's why the prophecy is as accurate as it is. And, and verse 16 in this reading is the fulfillment of that. So two key prophecies right there in verse 7 and 8. The invasion won't happen that you're all afraid of. It's not going to happen. Furthermore, the northern country of Israel is even going to cease to exist in the land in 65 years, completely gone. Now, we pick up, and this is where it gets very interesting. In, in verse 10, it said, later the Lord sent this message to Ahaz. I already told you, you know, it's later. What's happening here? Well, a couple things here. First, he's going back to Ahaz because he has no intention of listening to Isaiah and trusting God. This guy is so reprobate, okay? So the Lord says to Isaiah, listen, <laughs> this is one of the craziest stories in Scripture, really. You get to pick whatever sign you want, right? I, I, I think back where Jesus says in, in the New Testament, no sign will be given to you except for the sign of resurrection, right? When he, and he goes, and, and he says to um, um, Capernaum, he says, if the signs that I've done in Chorazin and Bethsaida had been done... Uh, I mean, the signs I've done here have been done in Chorazin and Bethsaida. They would have repented and seen life. In other words, you guys aren't going to change your thoughts with a sign, right? And that's exactly what's happening here. He, he doesn't even ask for a sign. He, he kind of stiff arms God, oh, feigns piety. Oh, I would never test the Lord. Well, God knows what's in his heart and what he's really saying, right? So... It's this amazing offer God's giving him to say what? Ask for anything. Move that mountain over there so that you know what I'm saying will happen and you will trust me. But he misses his opportunity and he fails to be faithful in the midst of this amazing generous offer and he willfully rejects God's provision. And at that point, you can make a little line between verse 12 and 13. Because now he's going after him. And he doesn't even call him by his name anymore. He calls him the royal family of David. It's one thing for the people to put up with a pro-Assyrian king. You know, that's the human patience part. But things move to an entirely different level when Ahab, Ahaz is trying the patience of God after this remarkable offer. His days are numbered. He probably gets to live another, I don't know, 10 years. But it's not just Ahaz alone. It's called the house of David, which is on trial. All of Judah's corrupt leaders are in the crosshairs of God's coming wrath. And that's what Isaiah does in these early chapters in his book. He says, it's coming. First the Assyrians to the north, then they'll come to the south. I'll repel them because of my faithful king Hezekiah, but one day the Babylonians will come for you. It's all in here. All in the book, right? And, and though he, he, they deserve, Ahaz deserves no sign or favor from God, he still reminds us of a coming greater sign, 
namely his deliverance that he's going to send. And that's why he pops in this prophecy, the prophecy of the, the coming Messiah. And he just throws it out there. Isaiah's probably going, I have no idea what this means. But all I know is there's going to be a virgin birth, and we're going to call him the Son of God, God with us, right? And I want to tell you this. I believe this sign has a single meaning but a double significance. And so what I mean by that, the meaning of this sign is when God is with us, we need not fear. What others may do to us, what circumstances may do to us. This is, this is the overarching theme of all of our lives. I've lived long enough. I've seen God move enough in my own life to understand faith is never easy. It is a step of faith. You are trusting what you cannot see. I Choose ye today who ye shall serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It is a step of faith. And, and it's hard to give up what? Your control or your perceived control over life. God calls us to surrender ourselves to him. That's what this whole story is about. Faith. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it is impossible to please God without faith. You and I are being tested monthly about where our commitment to God is in all of our decisions. Make no mistake, there is not just a point in time where I said, I trust the Lord. You will re-answer that question throughout your life. And you, like me, I'm sure, will fail at times. And then you'll see the consequences and you'll realize there, there's no hope there. There's only hope here. It's just like when Jesus said to Peter, right? When, after he feeds the 5,000 and he starts preaching the sermon, they didn't like the sermon, they start walking away, and he turns to Peter and says, are you going to go too? And he says, Lord, where else am I going to go? What else do I got? For the words of life, they're here. That's the story. That's all we got is God. But he, he tests us through the trial of faith. So, so the first significance for Ahaz's day is he need not go to Assyria because God is with Judah, but guess what? He has no faith. So that's the first significance. The second one and the greater one is the meaning of what is the, of God coming, that God is going to be with us, that this sign is of God's actual work that he promised in the garden when they fell, that I will send one one day through the seed of woman, and he's still coming. And Isaiah prophesizes the seven centuries before it happens. Now, Matthew would later write of this after the birth of Christ. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because she's, she's preggers now, and he's like, I didn't do that. <laughs> For the, the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There was the, the fulfillment of that prophecy 700 years earlier. And, and uh, here, here's the thing. For Ahaz and, and Judah to leave God out of the equation, not only of their life, but their planning because of fear, is to fall prey to the worst kind of fear. 
See, Ahaz is acting as if God is not, and Assyria is. We act as if God is not, and our money and retirement is. Right? What was the, what was the line Jesus used in the uh, Gospels? You know, the guy who built the barns, and he built more barns because he has so much stuff, right? And he gets in his home, and it's a warm Christmas night and the food is cooking and it's the it's the fun time of uh, the season and the family's coming in and he sits back and he says I'm making that part up he comes back and he says to himself ah my barns are full I am safe and secure be warm be filled right and what does it say fool tonight thy life will be required of thee who are we to actually think that we have more control than God over our lives. Walk in faith. Very foolish of Ahaz to think that God is not and Assyria is. Because as for Ahaz and as for us, God's presence must be accounted for in every decision. God cannot be deceived. He cannot be mocked. For whatever you sow, this shall you reap. That's a New Testament writing in the age of grace. Well, Ahaz is trusting something else in place of God. He will soon discover the God who is with us, bringing the very thing he had trusted in to come against him. And that's what verse 17 says. I will bring things on you, your nation, and your family unlike since the time these two nations broke apart, Israel and Judah. I will bring the king of Assyria on you. The very one you're trusting will be your demise. So God is sending this message in 714 for all history to judge whether or not he can be trusted. The virgin will conceive a child. Now up, this is where it gets a little academic, but it's, this is where the teeth of prophecy come in for you and I today that bites you and makes you say, wow, it isn't just faith, it's evidence. Up until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which began in 1946, and I believe I misprinted in your notes 1948, 1946 through the next 10 years, 1956, they made more and more discoveries. This was the original cave that they, the shepherd boys found the scrolls in and here was the thing. Up until that time, um, the skeptics of not only this prophecy in Isaiah 7, his prophecy in Isaiah 9, his prophecy about Jesus' crucifixion in Isaiah 53, which we share at Easter every year in our Good Friday service, they're so staggering. It, it, the skeptics called, would call this all predictive prophecy, which means simply this that these were added centuries later after the events took place, right? In other words, after this alleged Messiah was born, they went back, you know, seven centuries later and added it to the, the, the book of Isaiah. And you're saying, well, what do you mean they added it to it? It was written back then. Well, because the oldest manuscript we had of Isaiah in 1946 was from the ninth century A.D., Okay. 
That's 1,600 years removed from when it was allegedly written. And so they said it was predictive prophecy. They just added that stuff in somewhere over the last few centuries, or, you know, back in the first century. So you can see it was a very reasonable assumption to say, yeah, you're going to really have to trust those prophecies by faith because there's no evidence that that actually was written back in 700 B.C. Get ready. The Dead Sea Scrolls have been dated to 100 to 300 years B.C. And in those Dead Sea Scrolls, was a complete, uh, another word for complete is you'll see in the, in the right, uh, commentaries about this, extant, E-X-T-A-N-T, copy of the book of Isaiah. And of course, skeptics were eager to prove by this discovery that their predictive prophecy theory was true, that these Isaiah inserts were phonies. I wouldn't be talking about this if the outcome was any different. Isaiah 7:14, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 53, and so many other of his prophecies were all in there. What do you do with that? You know, in this world of disbelief, I, am, I marvel at how easily we set aside this kind of evidence. That this was written. Now, we'd say, well, it's, it's only 100 B.C. I don't care. You know, we don't have a 700 B.C. copy of Isaiah. The fact that we got a 100 B.C. copy, 100 years before it happened, it's still in there. Before he was born, before he was crucified, that's staggering. The channel of the blessing of the Most High flowed downward and to us in order that the child might be our upward cleansing. It should make the hair on our arms and our necks stand up. He came as prophesied. I was reading yesterday, if you could travel at the speed of light, do you know that you would, that's 186,000 miles an hour. Um, you could reach the moon in a little over a second. You could reach Mercury in four and a half minutes. You could get to Jupiter in half an hour and Saturn in an hour. That's the speed of light. And it would take you four years and four months to get to the next nearest star to our sun. And to get to the edge of our galaxy, the Milky Way, it would take you 100,000 years, our Milky Way, at the speed of light, 100,000 years. And if you counted the stars as you traveled, you count about 100 billion in the Milky Way alone. And we know there are literally billions of other galaxies, each with billions of stars. Who made all that? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Paul, in Colossians, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things have been created through Him and for Him. And that God of which there is no beginning, no end, came to earth just like you and I as a newborn baby who had to nap 
nurse cry and have his diaper changed. It gives really a new meaning to Paul's words in Philippians. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being where he appeared in human form and he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Emmanuel, God is with us. It is mind-blowing. And he knows what it's like to be you. And he had a purpose to rec rescue us from eternal death. As John would write, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. Matthew 121, which I read earlier, save his people from their sins. Someday when you die because of Jesus Christ coming, you will live forever with him and with everyone else who has believed and committed to him. And as I shared last week, I'll share in closing today, God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of law, which no one has been able to do except Jesus. We are made right with God by placing our faith, and we know now what? Faith is not an easy step. It will require trust. But he still gives us the teeth of prophecy so we know it's true. So I can take the step. And he says, this is true for anyone who believes, no matter who we are, no matter how much we have sinned, no matter how broken we are, there is hope on this side to repent and to receive. I hope it makes a difference to you. I hope it humbles you. Because God with us means nothing in this life can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Your sins have, begin, have been forgiven. So begin to live like it as we celebrate this Advent season. You are loved and forgiven. Let's pray. Father, um, the, words of your wor the words of Scripture are just staggering. And I just, I pray that you transform our weak faith into something that counts on you in everything. That we have, we can say, not cliche, but say with meaning in our heart, we are fully surrendered to you, God. No matter how hard it gets, we will trust you. I pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We'll have the ushers come forward. We've got the discussion group going on up at 1030 here upstairs if you'd like to talk about the message. And I, I think they mentioned the caroling thing. I don't know if there's a handout out there, but uh, if you'd like to grab that, I think we may have one out in the lobby for you. All right. God bless.